Genesis chapter 6. We're going to continue with this story of Noah. And like I said, I want us to sum up this passage tonight. Hopefully we can. I believe uh, that um, and it, it gets to a, a pretty sticky little piece there. And we'll look at that together. But of course, uh, we'll just kind of pick up and see where the Lord takes us. When we get into this passage, we saw last week of what happened, how God brings his judgment to the people there and how we see the flood was an act of judgment, how God brought that and he wiped out everything. It was total. It was complete. It was catastrophic. He wiped out everything, save Noah and his three sons and their wives, Noah's wife, three sons and wives. So eight people were kept through the flood in the ark that God told him to build. And we saw how God showed grace to Noah when it said Noah found favor in the eyes of God. This was a gift of grace that he was seen to Noah and how Noah followed the Lord in obedience. And if you remember, one of the things I wanted to point out last week or sought to point out last week is we see here Noah did not know about this flood unless God told him. Noah did not know about how to build the ark unless God told him. We see the absolute necessity of the revelation of God to tell us what is needed and what's going on. He would have never figured that up just by looking at things. He would have never understood this just by trying to evaluate nature or anything. He had to have the special revelation of God. So we are thankful tonight for the special revelation of God, his word. And his word has been given to us. And so just as God came to Noah, we don't want to, to minimize what we have in our hands or on your devices, however you brought them tonight. We don't want to minimize the fact that we have God's special revelation in our hands, his word that has told us that there is judgment that is coming that is greater than this flood. The judgment that is coming is one that is eternal. And there is a way out of that judgment, as we saw last week, which is greater than the ark, although it looks somewhat like it, but our ark is Jesus himself. And when we're found in him, we will pass through the judgment waters and fire of judgment that comes and we'll find safety on the other side in a new land, in a new place, just as Noah did, right? So we see that passage in Noah, we see how that works. I want us to say here that what we see happening is God develops or brings a covenant relationship with Noah. He makes a covenant with him. So if you look, this is why I said chapter six, if you look down in verse 17, the Lord is speaking. By the way, y'all notice something. Noah does not speak in any of this section. This is all God speaking. Noah doesn't speak until you get over to verse 25 in chapter nine, when he speaks and really speaks on behalf of God, when he pronounces curses and blessings. And so you see here in chapter 6, verse 17, the Lord is speaking, and he says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So the Lord pronounces his judgment, but he also makes a covenant there to Noah that I'm going to judge, but I'm going to protect you and your wife and your sons and their wives. I will take care of them. So God makes a covenant. 
Now, when we consider this term covenant, it's a legal term, if you will. And, and really in the scriptures, when we look at it, there's many different covenants that are made. You have covenants that usually happen between two parties, sometimes more than two parties. And in a covenant relationship, there are uh, requirements on both parties. Both parties have conditions of this covenant that they must keep in order to meet it, right? You must do something in order to meet these promises. One of the best ways that we today can understand a covenant is the covenant of marriage. When you come together, you see that there are promises made that are requirements from each one to keep in order for this covenant to be kept. And so, which is what we call our vows in that service. And so you see that. That's exactly what we'll see here in scriptures. But when we come to the covenants that God makes, I think another way for you to understand these may just simply be promises. God is making a promise. I mean, there's other words, testament. So the New Testament, Old Testament, that's the word, same word for covenant. We see that. But I think the best thing for us to understand this with is God is making a promise to Noah. He made a promise to Adam when he promised Adam through his blessing and cursing of what would happen. He's making a promise to Noah. He'll make other covenants, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, throughout the Old Testament. But these are promises God's making. So God is making two promises here. One, I'm going to flood the earth, but I'm promising you, Noah, that I will see you through on the other side. And if you remember last week, that whole passage in chapter 6 through chapter 8, almost to the end of it, spins on chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. This is not, if, I, if you remember, this is God's covenant fidelity. He's keeping his promise here. The whole passage spun on it. Remember I passed you out that sheet and, and, and it showed you the chiasm. Y'all remember all that? It was great. It was fun. So the whole passage spins on this. Up until 8, 1, you see the floodwaters rising. You see the earth being covered. You see, um, you see the ca catastrophe that is taking place in judgment. And then it says, but God remembered Noah. It was not as if God forgot Noah. What it's saying there in referencing is that God remembers the promise he made to Noah. And when you see verse 8, cha uh, chapter 8, verse 1, you see that the whole passage kind of shifts. It goes from the rising waters covering everything and everything dying, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts of the livestock and everything else. And then you start to see that the waters start receding. God remembers his promise and then he starts receding the waters and he starts bringing it down. And what you'll see then through chapter 8 all the way down to verse 19 is you see that flood water receding you see Noah sending out the bird. You see the bird coming back with the promise, that, I mean with the leaf. You see all of this is happening and you see how God has kept his promise to Noah. And he has seen Noah's family from through the judgment that God has brought out to the other side into a new land and a new place. God has done this. And so it gets to end of chapter 8 verse 19 and God has remembered Noah, and he has kept his promise, and he's walked him out to the other side. And then you start verse 20. And in verse 20 of chapter 8, if you have headings in your Bible, mine says God's covenant with Noah. You'll see how God now is going to, 
in some ways uh, ratify or give an understanding to what this covenant means. He made a promise to Noah. Now he's kept his promise. Noah is safe and he's establishing again what this means. And there's just a few things I want us to point out. First of all, God's promise here to Noah and his establishment, God says first that he will never destroy the earth again. When Noah gets out the boat, in verse 20, Noah gets out the boat, he builds an altar to the Lord, takes some clean animals, some every clean bird, and offers burnt offerings on the altar. The first thing Noah does, remember, Noah hasn't even spoken yet, but Noah has spoken a lot to us through this passage. God speaks, what did Noah do? He obeyed. When God said Noah built an ark, which sounds crazy, he's never heard of, he might not even be in a builder, what is it going on here? What does Noah do? He builds the ark. There always seems in this passage to be no stuttering from Noah, no sense that Noah is stopping or questioning. Noah is faithful and we demonstrates when God speaks, the only proper response for us is what? Obedience. We follow. God speaks, we follow. And so Noah becomes a testimony to us of how you are to be obedient to the Lord. When he speaks, you do it. And so Noah, again, has not spoken literally in this passage, but speaks volumes to us as Noah comes up. We've never seen rain before. The idea of water bursting up out the ground makes no sense. But yeah, I'll build a boat. And I'll do it because you told me to do it. And so God shows through Noah what this means of obedience and faithfulness. And so Noah proves that faith... Faith is going to be evidenced by the works you do. Just as James says, you can't have faith without the works, right? We recognize works cannot save us. It is faith alone that saves us, but faith is never alone, right? It's always going to be followed by what we do. You can't say you believe without following it in action. Belief demands action. And so the scriptures show us that Noah is demonstrating this. And not only that, Noah speaks volumes here when verse 20, when he gets out the boat and worships, he is testifying that he recognizes that it is only God that has brought him through this. God is the one who's worthy of worship. And how does he worship him? He worships him in the way God has shown to worship before, just as he's shown in chapter 3. Remember the sacrifices of Abel and Cain. Cain brings the, the grain from the field, and God says, that's not what you're supposed to bring. Abel brings the first fruits of the, the, the animals come, the blood sacrifice. And God says, that's acceptable here. You recognize in scripture that blood sacrifice is what's needed in order to worship God on his terms. To be made right before him, Noah does this. Noah gets out and by worshiping him, he's testifying, even knowing now that it is God who has brought him through. It's God who has been faithful and it's God who is worthy of his worship. As he offers this up, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, speaking of the burnt offerings, and the Lord said in his heart, well, I will never curse the ground because of man again. In other words, Noah's sacrifice and worship was pleasing to God. It was acceptable. It was an acceptable sacrifice and worship. And so he says, I will never curse the ground again. This is God's promise now read of, uh, being made and fulfilled. Part of this covenant is here is that he would never curse the ground again for the intention of man's heart is evil from its youth. What's not changed and what's changed? What's not changed here 
is that men are still sinful. Noah and his sons have come through the ark and the daughters and daughters-in-law, his wife and daughters-in-law, they've come through the ark, but God says men's hearts are still sinful. But even though they are, I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to bring the floodwaters again. I'm not going to curse the ground because of man, for the intention of their heart is evil from their youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. You have three never agains, really. Never again will... I curse the ground, never again will I strike down every living creature, and never again will sun, uh, summer, spring, winter, fall stop. The cycles of the earth will continue now. They will go on and on. The Lord makes this promise here with the covenant of Noah that he's not going to destroy it again like this. Now, that's got to be comforting. You build one ark, you don't want to build two. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You've gone through this one time, you don't want to do it again. You've been through this trouble, so, so I don't want to go through this again. And the Lord says, I'm not doing this again. There has to be comfort here for Noah to recognize that he's not. For, for God's, God's children, they're not going to have to deal with this or do this again just like this. Now, God's going to say something here in a minute, but he's not going to do it just this way, just this way again. Well... What's also interesting here, what's also interesting here is we, as we consider this plan, it's, it's interesting how this story is told because this is not like, and I want to reiterate this, this is not like just simply Noah kind of recounting the days. The scriptures are unique in, in the sense that they're giving us God's perspective here because who wrote Genesis but Moses? We'll remember, I'll point this out again in a minute. He's writing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it says in, in Exodus that Moses met face to face with the Lord, right? And he's there in the tent. And so writing this under inspiration, he's taking down the very words of God and what God is saying. So this is testifying to the nature of scripture itself, that this is not just men's ruminations or whatever of, of what happened and just the diary of Noah. This is God himself speaking. And when God himself speaks, we also can recognize that what is said, what is said can be verified in time and what we see. And so Noah now is hearing the words of the Lord, verifying this. And the Lord is saying, the earth will continue until I don't want it to continue anymore. Remember that. I am one that is all for uh, taking care of the planet by all means. We should be good stewards of what God has created. I'm also one that does not believe that we should fall into any nonsense as to think that we're on the verge of catastrophe and the whole place is about to explode because of something we have done. Does everybody understand what I mean? Because the Lord says this earth will not pass away until it is time. And that is in his hands. It's just like I've said before, like, like Lottie Moon, our sweet Lottie Moon says, I am immortal until the Lord calls me home. You know what I'm saying? Nobody in here is going to die until it's time for the Lord to call you home, the scripture says. And so up until that point, we only go when the Lord allows us or calls us to go. And what we see here with the world is what he's promising is that I have set a day, the Lord is saying, when all this will end. But that day does not come until I say so. 
And for us as believers, that should be quite comforting. To know that while we look at everything out here that's going on now and we think, God, this world's gone to hell. I mean, my, my, I don't know if I should say it like that, by the way. That's how my grandma used to say it, and she loved Jesus. And what I was going to do is use the hell in a handbasket, which makes it better, but I forgot the handbasket part. And we look at this, look at it, look, look at how this whole place is falling apart, right? Look at how all of this is happening. And you can say that, and absolutely we look at it and we mourn it just as Jeremy prayed up here, praying for others and lifting it up. But we also can be comforted. We can also be comforted that it's still here because God wants it to be here. Therefore, there's work to be done. There's things to happen. And there's other people out there, even in Afghanistan, that God has as his children. All we got to do is go get them and claim them. And so ultimately, we should take comfort in this. This psalm has called the covenant of preservation. It's showing us that the Lord will preserve all things until his moment and his time. And so God says this to Noah. Second part of this covenant, we see that even though Noah's in a new place, in a new world now after the flood, there are also new rules that are taking place. Here in chapter 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Y'all ever heard that before? That's Genesis chapter, chapter 1, verse 28. He's reestablishing, he's reestablishing what was said to Adam and Eve. Because this is the new Noah, right? Adam and Eve, this is the new line. This is Noah and his, his wife and their three kids and their wives. So now you've got this new place. And he says, he reestablishes this creation mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. You're going to look over in chapter 10. And we'll see this uh, hopefully next week. Yeah, I'm looking at my clock. You'll see how from the descendants of Noah, that's exactly what happens. And then in chapter 11, you'll find out how they got dispersed throughout all of the earth, right? So you see, this is the command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But what you notice is, maybe, is that there's no subdue it and rule over it. Because of sin that is still there, remember, even though God was pleased with what Noah did, he's not going to destroy the earth like this again. But the intention of every man's heart is evil from its youth. There's still sinfulness here. The curse that was there in Genesis 3, that curse is still remaining. And because of that, you're not going to be able to subdue it ultimately like it was. And you're not going to be able to rule over it like Adam and Eve were. So what is God going to do? He's going to institute some new things. He says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. Now, this is the hunting verse, right? So it wouldn't be any fun if you could just walk up to a deer and shoot it. That wouldn't be any fun. You got to find those things. You got to hunt them down. You got to go after. Why? Because animals have a dread of people and people have a dread of animals. Have y'all ever been in the woods with something wild that you were scared of? Like a lizard? Y'all, all y'all get scared of lizards. They get in your house. You have a dread of those things. That's put in your heart here in this new creation. Why is this? It's helping. It's helping creation work in some way. Therefore, you keep separate. There's this dread upon everything that creeps. Ground of all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Now, beforehand, this may not have been the case, but now it is that now these moving things, the things that live, you can eat those things now. 
He's going to pronounce some of them later unclean and clean. But then remember Acts chapter 10, that glorious passage in Acts chapter 10 where the Lord tells Peter that it's time to eat bacon. And so (laughs) everything then, right? And so everything here, he says, now you can eat this food. They're going to be harder to kill. They're going to be scared of you. You're going to have to hunt them down. But you can eat them now. You have a new establishment of what's going on in creation. He says, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. In other words, you need to kill it and and cleanse it of that first because this is the life-giving. And for every lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Now, this this is an interesting passage. Because of what happened before, remember in Genesis chapter 4, Abel is killed by his brother Cain. And what happens? The Lord puts a mark on Cain and sends him out, sends him out so no one would take his life, right? We didn't want to start this murdering, if you will, but still Abel, Cain's people begin to be murderers. Lamech kills his thousands of thousands. And so in this new government of things, there must be a protection. You don't want evil to overcome in such a way that the evil ones begin to murder everybody and take their life. There has to be some repercussion. And so the Lord says here, from fellow man, I require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And so if you were to take a life of one, then your life would be required. And so this is the passage in scripture that speaks to the issue of capital punishment. And this is put in place for protection and for good. Does everybody understand what I said? Because if there's no repercussions for taking a life, then those who are evil will just continually take lives. But when there's repercussions for them, it puts a strain on it. So this was placed as a rule and a law in this new creation because every man's intention was evil in their heart. God knew that that idea of murder would be there and we don't want the murderers taking over. So therefore there must be repercussions for this because everybody's made in the Lord's image. Everybody's made in the Lord's image. That's why I believe and as Christians that there is a biblical mandate and understanding of capital punishment. Now hear me when I say this. Just because I believe there's a biblical mandate and understanding in capital punishment, there has to be a system in place where it's done properly, done well, and done in a God-honoring way. And just because we have that system, it does not mean it's always done properly, done well, or in a God-honoring way. Does, everybody make, does that make sense to everybody? I'll fight all day long for what I believe is a proper understanding of the scriptures on capital punishment. What I also will do is say there needs to be reform in systems so that it honors God in every possible way we can do it. And we do everything we can to find find out truth in a situation of guilt or what other things. Does that make sense to everybody? God says this to Noah as a good It's a good to protect society from going off the rails again like it did in Genesis 6. To protect society from getting wild and those who were most evil running the day. There has to be a protection against it. In this covenant then that you have God's promise he'll never destroy the earth again like this. His institution of new rules on how creation would have to operate one with another that testify even to our day. And then finally there in verse Eight, you begin to see how this reiteration comes through a sign 
that is given. God said to Noah and his sons, Behold, I'm establishing my covenant. He kind of restates everything. Verse 7, Be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, multiply in it. He reestablishes all of this. Verse 11, I'll establish my covenant with you. Verse 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The bow is like the bow and arrow, if you will. The Lord laying down his weapons against the earth here. And God says, this will be a testimony. When does it come? If it starts raining again, when you see the bow, you'll recognize that I'm not flooding you out. I promised you I'm not. And so this becomes a beautiful sign of the God's promise to his people. The rainbow should not reflect anything other than God's faithfulness and beauty and glory. And so ultimately here, ultimately here, we see signs in Scripture as comforts to God's people, as comforts of his promises, beauty in the midst of the storm, if you will. Just like whenever God walked Abraham outside, Abraham thinking he was all alone. And God said, you see the stars? Your people will be more than that. It's a comfort to Abraham. Just like when Jacob just had his little incident with Esau and he had to flee home and run out. And Jacob said, God, I've been left. I'm here with nobody. And Jacob has a dream. And what does he see? A stairway from heaven down to earth with angels ascending and descending, letting him know, I'm with you, Jacob. I'm here. It's a comfort to him. Just like Moses out in the middle of the wilderness after he had killed the Midianite there and he's He's sitting there not knowing what to do. And then this bush comes. It's burning but not consumed. A sign to him that God is present. And just like every week for the Israelites with the Sabbath. A sign to them that God has rest planned for them. All of these signs just like this rainbow that is put in the clouds are signs that God keeps his promises and comforts his people over and over again. God keeps his promises and comforts his people. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is meant for our comfort. In ratifying this then, just a couple things I want to note about this covenant that God made. First of all, this is a unilateral covenant. There's no requirements expected from Noah here. God makes this on his own. Most covenants are bilateral. It's two people or more have to come together, but not here. God comes and says, I'm making a promise to you. This is God's covenant. God's covenant. There's not a bargain here. It's not tit for tat. It's not, here, Noah, I need this from you. If you give me this, I'll give you that. This is a testimony that God has done this on his own, on his own initiative. And let us remember a comfort that should go into every one of our hearts is that God did not have to save any of us. He saved us. Why? Because he wanted to. Does everybody understand what I mean? God saved us because he wants to. 
And that should be a testimony and a blessing to us. He wanted to save us. He wanted to send his son. And that's what he's saying to Noah here. I'm going to make a covenant with you, Noah, because I want to. Therefore, it's his own initiative. It's God acting, not dependent upon Noah, not dependent upon what Noah could do, what Noah could accomplish, whether or not Noah could even finish that boat. It wasn't dependent upon any of that. It was simply God wanting to save and redeem Noah. And that should be comforting to us. God made promises to us, not out of any compulsion that we had brought up, not out of any compulsion that we had conjured up or worked up. God made promises to us simply because he wanted to make promises to us. He wanted to be with us. He wanted to redeem. And he said that to Noah here when he says, I'm going to make a covenant from you, for, with you. And this covenant is eternal. And why is this covenant eternal? It's eternal because God is eternal. Notice that God never, uh, God says never again will this happen. Now this doesn't mean that the earth is going to continue forever just like this. What this means is this promise will be kept until it is met with a greater promise at another time. Does that make sense? God is eternal and God doesn't break his promises. God is eternal and God doesn't break his promises. And finally this covenant is gracious. It's gracious because man does not deserve any of this. We did not deserve to be redeemed or saved. And let me just remind you of what it says. Even though Noah worships, he offers it up, he offers a sacrifice. The intention of every man's heart is evil from his youth. And so when we read scripture, we recognize, we recognize that this is true. For all have sinned. All have fallen short. That any promise God makes to us is a gift of his grace to us. We don't deserve it. He gives it to us graciously. When you get to the end of chapter 8, just to testify to that. When you get to the end of chapter 8, God has finished speaking. He's made this gift. Noah has done everything right so far. I mean, when you consider it with Noah, he, he said back in 6, 9, that he was a righteous man that walked with God. 2 Peter 2, 5, remember, he's a herald of righteousness, Peter calls him. If you flip over, if you flip over to Hebrews chapter 11, Noah makes it into the hall of faith, right? By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in Reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah is a hero of the faith. And when you go through this, that's how he's remembered. Peter remembers him as a herald of righteousness. Uh, the author of Hebrews remembers him as a hero of faith. And so when you get to the end of chapter 8, there should be, if you're just reading through this for the first time, if you're just making your way through this book for the first time, there should be some thought in your head that maybe this is the guy. Remember Genesis 3.15? We are looking for the serpent crusher. The Lord says to the serpent, I'm going to crush your head. You may deal a blow, but I'm going to crush your head. So we are looking for the one who's going to crush the head of the great disturber of God's peace. We're looking for the serpent crusher who's going to come from the seed of the woman. And here is Noah. He's come from the seed of the woman, from the line of Seth. He's continuing in this line. He has been found righteous. He's a herald of righteousness. He's considered one who's a testimony of faith. Here is Noah. Is this the serpent crusher? Is this the one? 
that we've been waiting on, this hero that's going to save us and end the one who's the great disturber of the peace. And then you go to chapter, second half of chapter 9, verse 18 there. The sons of Noah went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. That'll explain this in a minute. These three were the sons of Noah, and from those the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soul, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Just the moment. Now, I want to say, this first of all speaks, I think, to the authenticity of the scriptures themselves. Most of the time, if you're going to write narratives about heroes in the past, you try to cover up some of their sinfulness. You know what I'm saying? You don't mention the fact that grandpa used to like to take a little nip every night before he went to bed. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I love my grandma. My grandma was one of those ladies that if you turned on the TV and Bewitched was on, she would hear it from seven miles out, come running home and says, get that witchcraft off my TV. You know what I'm saying? She was like that. But she also, she kept, she kept her little uh, um, uh, paper clips, right, in this little steel, little round tube. Y'all know what I'm talking about? About that tall, steel, little round tube. And I kept saying, Grandma, what is that tube? Where did you get that tube from? And she wouldn't tell me. And finally, you know what my mama told me? She said that was her mama's. <laughs> my mama told me that was my grandmother's mother's. And I said, well, what that was? Well, that's where they kept their snuff back in the days, right? <laughs> Grandma didn't want to tell me that, her grand that my great-grandma chewed snuff every time, all, all this stuff. When we look at our heroes, you got to keep this, you keep some of the, but not the scriptures. This is Noah, the herald of righteousness, the one who came through the ark. And what's the next thing it tells us is that the joker got drunk and embarrassed himself and dishonored himself in front of everyone. It doesn't tell, it doesn't hide his weakness and it shouldn't. Why? Because the scripture says every man's heart's evil. And just like that, just like so many other stories before, like Abraham who takes Sarah and lies about her and sells her off to prostitution. Like Judah who, who doesn't give the, his, his next son to Tamar, but yet he goes and sleeps with the prostitute. Like David who takes Bathsheba. Y'all see what I'm saying? The scriptures does not hide the sinfulness of men. Ever. Which I think testifies to its truthfulness. It's testifying to that. It's not hiding this. It's speaking truth. It speaks to the veracity of the word itself. Noah got drunk and embarrassed himself. He lay uncovered in his tent. He shamed himself. In other words, this is not the serpent crusher. This is not the serpent crusher. We're looking for one greater. And that's what these covenants are for, by the way. Remember, as we go through the Old Testament, we see that the scriptures are going to reveal who the serpent crusher is progressively. It's not going to come out right at the beginning. It's going to reveal who this one is. And these covenants serve to do just that. The covenant with Noah testifies that God is not going to fight against creation anymore. He's going to redeem it. He's going to preserve it. How is he going to preserve it? We'll find out later. He doesn't tell us, but he's going to preserve creation. We find out with Abraham that it's not it, it, that the, the one who's coming is going to come from this nation, Israel. And it's going to come. He's going to come and he's going to 
establish a land forever. And those who bless will be blessed. Those who curse will be cursed. We're looking for that one who is the seed of Abraham, right? Who's the, who's the child of Abraham. We're looking for that one. We see the promise that's going to come even a little bit later through David that this one who's coming is going to be a king and he'll be on his throne forever. Each one of these covenants is almost like you take the, you take the uh, telescope, if you will, and you just kind of zoom it in a little bit more or adjust it and it becomes more and more clear of who's coming. And so each one of these are just revealing who's coming, who this serpent crusher is. But at each step, it also reveals that while they're heroes of the faith that step in, all of those heroes prove that they're not the serpent crusher. They're dependent upon the serpent crusher. And so here's Noah. And Noah comes up, he gets drunk, and he violates himself. He lays uncovered. He shames himself, and he proves he is not the one. He falls into sin, proving that every man's heart is evil from even its youth. By the way, Noah's 600 years old when all of this takes place, right? So don't think just because you're old you can't do anything stupid, okay? I get you. <laughs> now, I want you to see another thing here. The point of this passage, the point of this passage goes back up there to verse 18, though. Ham was the father of Canaan. And what we see happen, Noah gets drunk, lays uncovered. Verse 22, it's one of those passages that's difficult sometimes for others to get, but let's talk about it real quick. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see the father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now what in the world just happened, right? Seems interesting here. You have this incident. Ham walks in, it says, sees his father's nakedness. You see that there's two clear reactions here to what's going on. Noah is laying there. Ham sees it and goes and tells the brothers, whereas the brothers go in backwards with a blanket and doesn't look, which makes more sense to me. Moves in with a blanket, doesn't look, and covers him. What the brothers do will be blessed by Noah. What Japheth, Japheth and Shem do will be blessed by Noah. What Ham did will be cursed by Noah. Now, there's several responses to this. In fact, people have written books on what's happening right here. And what I think, dwindling it down, I'm going to give you what I think could be two possibilities, okay? Two interpretations of what's taking place. First, I think this could be just simply an act of dishonor. In other words, you are, your father has dishonored himself, and so instead of doing the right thing and covering the nakedness, you are exposing this dishonor. In other words, you're, take, you're relishing in his sin. Have anybody ever done this? We've seen other believers fall into sin, and what do we do? We, instead of praying over them, covering them in prayer, we go and mock them, make fun of them, and make it even worse in their dishonor, right? But what does that testify to? So what I believe that could possibly testify to is that Ham was not even a believer in Noah's 
message in the first place. And so what we see with a lot of people is they'll see Christians fall into sin and they'll use that falling into sin as an excuse to not believe in what the Christian says as the message. Does that make sense to everybody? And so we see here because of this, Ham was cursed because he did not believe in what his father had been preaching, exposing his father's sin here rather than covering it up and not covering up in a way so that it won't be known, but covering a way that his father would not be dishonored dishonored. And so in some way that may be the case. That may be just what happens. The problem with that view is that why does he not curse Ham and he curse Canaan? Which breeds to the second view. The second view, uh, remember one of our main points as we do interpretation is that the best interpreter of scripture is what? Scripture. That you read your Bible more if you've got a, t- a tough spot. If you turn over to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 22, I believe. Let me, let me get there and verify. As Moses is giving the law. Yeah, Deuteronomy 22, verse 30. This seeing the nakedness of is a euphemism, if you will. It's a phrase, right? It's, it's, we use phrases all the time, especially in the South, that, that we, we use to mean, that said one thing, because maybe even the one thing we're trying to say is a little too lewd or a little too harsh, so we use another phrase in its place so as to not offend, if you will. But Deuteronomy 22.30 says, a man shall not take his father's wife, right? This is incest between a son and a mother. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Does that make sense? So ultimately there, there's two positions. One, he may be dishonoring his father, not believing the message of his father and relishing in his father's sin only to expose and expand on his dishonor. The other possibility here in understanding this is that what happened, taking advantage of his father being passed out and drunk, in the tent, he goes in and commits an incestual relationship with his mother. The problem with this is why would he walk out and tell his brothers that, right? Why would he walk out and tell his brothers? Now, there are passages such as 2 Samuel. And don't act like that's crazy. Nobody would ever do that. Just watch Dateline. This kind of stuff happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Just go in. And, and so you see places in 2 Samuel here where like whenever Absalom takes over for David, his father, Absalom goes in and takes all of David's wives and it says that he gets with them publicly so as to show his power, right? We see it in other places where brothers, uh, Ham was not the firstborn, maybe jealous of the firstborn. He goes in and does this to show his power over his brothers to take influence over him. Maybe that was the reason why. But this This one also would help understand why Canaan is cursed. Because Canaan would have been born, well, Ham has five kids, but it's only Canaan that receives the curse. Canaan would have been born by an incestuous relationship, right? And so why does the curse come to Canaan? Because he possibly could have been born by an incestuous relationship. Deuteronomy 22.30 helps us to see that that same euphemism is used to refer to an incestuous relationship between son and mother. All of us kind of icky, right? We get the icky. And again, the scripture's not hiding icky or sin. 
It never does. In fact, the scripture seeks to expose ickiness and sin so that we will recognize the absolute necessity of the remedy, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. And so here, the point of this section, though, is not just to talk about nakedness and drunkenness and all this other stuff. Remember where this is written. This is written by Moses. They are in the wilderness headed toward what? The promised land. They're going into the promised land. And Moses is saying, remember the Cainites and what God did to the Cainites? All of those who were children of Cain and that line, God punished them with a flood. But remember that God told Abraham that Israel was ours. There's a land that's flowing with milk and honey that is ours. And we've been in bondage for 400 years and now we're headed to that land, right? And who is in that land? The Canaanites. The Canaanites replaced the Canaanites. They're wicked. They're cursed. They're sinful. And in fact, just a little bit, the Lord says he kept them until their sins had become so great it was time to punish them. So as they're going in, it becomes a theodicy, if you will, an argument for what God is about to do. He's about to take his people into the land that he's promised them. And that land is filled with a bunch of people that were born of an incestuous relationship and were sinful and cursed. And therefore, the judgment is coming and God's going to use his people to bring that judgment. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? It becomes an argument. Here's what's happening. We're going in now to the promised land filled with the Canaanites. And here's where the Canaanites came from. And this is why they're judged. People have abused this passage for years. One of the great abuses is many use the argument for African-American slavery on the curse of Ham, which doesn't make any sense. It's one of the worst if you read a book, and, and I'm talking about late into the 70s, the reason why African Americans were enslaved because it was under the curse of Ham, because he said servant of servants. It's one of the most terrible interpretations of scripture I've ever seen. It has nothing to do with what's going on here. It was looking back and trying to justify a sinful action we have and trying to figure out a text to justify it. That's what it does. What this passage is talking about is there are Canaanites in the land that God is going to judge, and here's where they came from. Here's where they came from. The curse of Ham doesn't even make sense anyway because Canaan was cursed. And so here the Lord says that's what's about to happen. The Lord has given an argument, a clear sign to his people. As we go into the promised land that is yours, it is filled with sinful people and judgment is coming upon them and the Lord is going to use us to bring that judgment. Moses is teaching the people even as they go in, not only where they came from but what they're going to do. What they're going to do. And he says, cursed is Canaan, Blessed, blessed the Lord God of Shem, Canaan, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan be his servant. The one who will rise to the top of the brothers is Shem, and it will be through Shem that the line will continue all the way down to Christ. All the way down to Christ. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Noah demonstrated faithfulness, righteousness, did all those things. And at the end of it, he still demonstrated that he was sinful. He still demonstrated, even having come through the flood and the judgment of God, that he needed a savior. Noah was holding on to the promises of God. Just like today, we hold on to the promises of God. Noah was holding on to the promise of God that were made, right? 
we hold on to the promises of God that have been kept. Because in our line, we recognize that all of the promises of God that he made, not one of them slipped through his fingers. Not one of them has failed. God promised that he will preserve us until he can redeem us. God promised that he will send a king for us who will be not only a king, but he'll be a prophet who gives us God's word and a priest who intercedes on our behalf. He'll fulfill everything. God promised that there is a land for us and we have a one who is already going to prepare that place. And what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He has filled them all. He's filled them all. And every time we see a rainbow, we remember the Lord keeps his promises. And every time we look up at the stars, we remember God keeps his promises. And every time we understand that rest that he's given us, we remember God keeps his promises. But more than that, we don't need those kind of signs anymore because the sign we have has been engraved on our hearts that once was dead, cold, dead, and black, but now has been made new, alive again, washed with the blood of Jesus. The sign we have is, an uncir- is a circumcised heart for the Lord, a new heart. That has been put in us. Why? Because there's been a new covenant that has been made. In that new covenant, in that new covenant, God ripped out the heart of stone of the sinful men who every heart is evil from his youth. He ripped out that cold, black, dead heart and he replaced it, as the scripture says, with a heart of flesh that lives for him, that lives for him. That's the only sign we need is the new heart that God has put within us. And every day we understand the comfort we have because of a new heart that he's given us, a new heart that he's given us in Christ because God has kept every single promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love you. You are good to us. Never once have you failed us. Never once will you. And so tonight, God, may we be reminded of your faithfulness and love for us and how you have kept your promises in your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that every heart in here has been made new in him. Father, thank you. We love you. We appreciate you for all that you have given us. And it is a privilege for us to be able to gather around your word this evening. All for your glory in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you Sunday.